WFM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Your used car or junker can help keep WERU running strong. Call 1-877-411-3662 and the Center for Car Donations will come and take away your used vehicle and sell it to benefit WERU. Cars, trucks, and boats are all eligible. Whether your vehicle will be driven again or sold for parts or scrap, it can still help your community radio station. Turn your old car into money for WERU. Call 1-877-411-3662. And you can find that number again at WERU.org under the Support drop-down menu. Support for WERU provided by the Republican Journal on newsstands every Wednesday serving Belfast and Waldo County or on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor. Stay tuned for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our new 2012 series to be broadcast over the next year on the second Monday of each month. We'll feature topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in co cooperation with WERU Community Radio. Our conversation today is about what we need to make our democracy work better. We'll discuss some of the systemic factors that prevent our elected representatives from fulfilling the will of the people in our democracy and some actions we as citizens can take to get democracy back on track. Later in the program, we'll invite you to call in with questions or comments. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our very special guest today, Joining us by phone, I think from her home in North Haven, yes, is uh, Maine's first district congresswoman, the Honorable Shelley Pingree. Representative Pingree is serving her second term in the U.S. House of Representatives. She served in the Maine State Senate from 1993 to 2000 and as president and CEO of Common Cause from 2003 to 2007. Welcome, Representative Pingree. Good morning. Nice to talk with you. Glad you could be here. Are you at home? Uh, actually, today I'm in Portland. Uh, I have an office in Portland. So Calling in from Portland, Portland. great. And then join, joining us also by phone is Dr. Thomas Mann. Dr. Mann is the W. Averill Harriman Chair and Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Between 1987 and 1999, he was Director of Governmental Studies at Brookings. He is a noted congressional scholar and writes and speaks widely on issues related to campaigns, elections, campaign finance reform, and the effectiveness of Congress. He is co-author of the book, The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back. Welcome, Dr. Mann. Thank you. So glad you could be here. Are you in Bethesda, Maryland today? No, no, I'm, I'm in the Brookings studio down in Washington. All right, great. 
Well, I'm glad you could both be here and join us by telephone. Um, let's get the conversation started. Um, a Gallup poll that re was released just before Christmas showed only 11% of Americans approve of the job Congress is, drew is doing. That re represents a record low, the lowest single rating in the history of Gallup's asking this question every year since 1974. Representative Pingree, let me put it to you first. Why do you think Congress has such a low approval rating? <laughs> well, Dr. Mann is an expert in this topic, so I'll be interested to hear his thoughts. And um, hello, Tom. I haven't had a chance to talk with you for a long time, so nice to be I'm on the radio. I'm happy to be with you. Great to uh, have this uh, chance to have a conversation. Um, but I would say, you know, uh, people aren't wrong to be so frustrated with Congress. And as a member of Congress, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I'm frustrated with Congress as well. Um, I think there's a whole variety of factors uh, probably foremost in people's minds is that we're in a very difficult economy right now. People look out and see, you know, problems that should be solved and uh, issues that should be dealt with, and they look at a Congress that is just bound up by gridlock, doesn't get anything done, the House can't work with the Senate, the Republicans can't work with the Democrats. Um, I think people find it a very frustrating time, and again, uh, you know, I, I agree. I think there's a variety of factors we can discuss about, you know, what's wrong with our system today, but from the influence of money in politics to the two-year election cycle, the way the media covers um, the issues that we're dealing with, you know, sort of a soundbite culture that we've gotten into, um, I think there's a host of problems, and unfortunately they appear to be getting worse, not better. Dr. Mann, what do you want to add to that? What do you think's behind it? Well, I think the mystery is, who are those people who approve of the role <laughs> of Congress these days? <laughs> Senator McCain, oh, had, Senator McCain uh, quips that he thinks uh, support is down to congressional staff and blood relatives. Uh, <laughs> listen, as, as Shelley said, uh, there's no reason for anyone uh, in America to be happy uh, about the current state of affairs. Remember the vast majority believe the country's off on uh, the wrong track. They have low levels of, uh, of trust that uh, anything can be done to really turn our economic problems around. They don't really trust the government. They have exceedingly low ratings of the parties, more the Republicans than the Democrats. And uh, so all of that contributes to it. But I think what's pushed it down to record levels has been uh, a consequence of the strategy of the, of the Republican majority in the House after the 2010 elections. They're, they were convinced they knew what had to be done. We had to immediately cut spending uh, and, and cut it substantially, that the stimulus had been a waste and our problems were a consequence of, of government becoming too large. So they decided to to really engage in a, in a game of brinkmanship, of, of hostage-taking, beginning with the, the budget for the year already underway with the threat to shut the government down, followed by this sort of painful, unnecessary battle over raising the, the debt ceiling and, and culminating in, in uh, the fight over extending uh, the payroll tax cuts for an for another year at the end of the session. Uh, each time they, they indicated a, a willingness to, uh, to do damage uh, 
to the overall economy and the place of the U.S. and the world in order to get their way as sort of non-negotiable demands. So this is painful um, uh, for, the pu- for the public to see. And the ratings really bottom, hit bottom uh, uh, when they, the public saw what the ultimate result of that hostage taking was with the debt ceiling when our uh, our credit rating was downgraded and in general uh, we probably did more harm to the economy than help. But apart from the policies of the current majority, I mean we can all think of examples where a supermajority of Americans favor a particular change in policy but Congress and the President seem unable to make that change happen. I mean why is that? What are the systemic impediments, you know, the structural problems that prevent Congress, um, Congress after Congress, from responding to what the members must know people really want? Well, on that score, uh, Shelley, I mean, I think that's right, although I'm, it's, it's interesting. I'm, uh, I'm a sort of nonpartisan guy, and I'm telling you, that right now the Republicans are a greater source of the problem than the Democrats, and you're looking to be more balanced and, <laughs> and fair-minded. Uh, uh, it's, it's interesting. There, there are two problems. One is the fact that we now have political parties that are more like parliamentary parties. That is, they're vehemently adversarial. They are ideologically polarized, and they are engaged in a constant war uh, to try to gain a majority to take the White House, to take or hold the House uh, and the Senate. Uh, uh, and those parties and the governments that the elections produce then have to try to put programs in place uh, with, a, with a constitutional system that's not designed for parties like this, uh, a separation of powers, midterm elections, uh, filibusters in the Senate. That is, we have a horrible mismatch between the kind of parties we have and then the kind of uh, institutions uh, we have for, for governing. That's the biggest and long-term problem, but it's now been exacerbated by the fact that one of our political parties has veered sharply from center of American politics. And it is veer- in this case, uh, it's the Republicans veering right. In past years, it, it had been the Democrat, Democrats veering left, but, but it is a reality. So we have two, two sets of problems. One, mismatch of parties and governing institutions. The other, party asymmetry. One of our parties has gone uh, a little batty, a little uh, extreme or a lot extreme, and, and that makes governing uh, in the center exceedingly difficult. Shelley, what would you like yeah, to say? Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll echo. Uh, I think you actually made a very good point that doesn't get discussed enough, That um, uh, and I hadn't really thought about it in the way that we're acting more like a parliamentary system without the right um, structure, but the fact is we are today, I think, governed by our two-year election cycle instead of the four-year cycle that the president's under, the six-year cycle that the Senate's under, and I think the Founding Fathers, you know, had a very good model in mind of the separation of powers and a variety of 
of um, acting bodies that operated under a different system. The problem is we're now almost all of us locked into this two-year election cycle and the huge swings that, that continue to take place so that everybody, in a sense, um, it, it, uh, everybody governs for the next election, which isn't really any way to govern. You're just basically politicking for the next election. So um, we, we we have sort of this breakdown in the system that ends up being governed by elections, and our elections are in many ways dysfunctional as well. And I do have to concur. I mean, I'm I'm here to talk about the system and not partisan politics, but I appreciate, you know, Dr. Mann's um, sentiments on the extreme right wing you know, side of the Republican Party taken over. And I think, um, you know, being from Maine, where we have a lot of moderate Republicans, you'll meet plenty of them who will bemoan this phenomenon as well. Uh, people, you know, often try to say, well, this is a problem of both parties. But I can say as a Democrat and as a left-wing Democrat, you know, from Maine, it's a, this party, our party is no longer in the left. I mean, I think, I think um, you know, there are many Democrats today who are trying to find that middle ground. I think the president came in thinking, that his role would be, you know, to uh, alleviate right-wing um, or, you know, extremist thinking in the political process and to bring, you know, both parties together to govern. And if, if anything, he's had a real transition of saying, okay, you know, let's throw it out. I'm just going to get in there and fight. And, and frankly, I think that's too bad. When I first got elected to Congress, you know, three short years ago, um, you know, the first thing the president did was he, he held these, you know, small uh, come over for a drink at the White House parties with Republicans and Democrats, and I think he sincerely was trying to find a way that we could sit down and work together. And I think that the political climate of today is, is bigger than he was able to uh, change. And I think you'll find, you know, many, many members of Congress, and I think it's true in both parties, um, want to you know, work on solutions that are compromises that we can all agree with, but particularly the leadership in the parties and um, this sort of climate that we're in today that is just thinking about, you know, how does our message overwhelm your message? How does our sound bike, you know, get through on this 24-hour news cycle better than yours does? And um, it has nothing to do with, you know, real policy issues and real challenges that we're facing in our economy today. And, in fact, you know, we're not governing in many ways, as a political body, we're just sort of politicking for the next election. And, well, uh, you know, that's a, frustrating. Well, and I, I mean, for citizens, apart from a sort of a throw-the-bums-out strategy, what can people do about this? Is the climate that you described a transitory phenomenon? Is this something that will pass with time? Or are we stuck with a structural problem that's a product of modern times? And what can we hope for a better future? I mean, what could we do to change that? One of the ironies is that the public's natural response to difficult times uh, like this is a, a visceral throw the bums out. I mean, that's in a democracy, the capacity of the voters to throw the bums out is designed to, to keep the politicians honest, on track, to keep the parties from veering too far. Uh, off, off center, but that accountability is very difficult in our system as opposed to a parliamentary system. I mean, think about it. In our system, uh, Barack Obama won a, uh, a strong majority. Democrats increased their majorities in, in the House and the Senate. If, if we had a parliamentary system, 
his program would have uh, been put in place in the first nine months uh, uh, or, or 12 months. The, the stimulus would have been larger and more targeted in a, in a way sort of Democrats believe would have uh, produced uh, jobs more, more rapidly. The kind of slow walk on health reform, which served to undermine its legitimacy and with a broader public would have been uh, quickened. We would have had financial reform in the first year, not uh, later in the, in the second year. And there would have been four to five years to have these policies in place to play out. Then if, if, if the public looked at it, saw, saw what the consequences were over the longer haul, they knew who to hold responsible, the, the majority party. But alas, that's not how our system works. We had a midterm election within, within two years where we were barely uh, beginning to recover from the worst financial crisis since, since the Great Depression. We, we had a unified Republican opposition and, and for a while enough, uh, enough senators uh, to, uh, to filibuster anything. Um, uh, so it, it produced a very different kind of a system. So in 2010, the public said, God, this is awful. We're, our economy hasn't bounced back to life. They've been fighting a lot. There's this socialist health reform plan that's been adopted. So they voted against the party of the president, producing a Republican majority in the House, which then followed a course of action that the public hates. So their very democratic response made things worth it worse uh, rather than improved it. So I'm sorry for going on so long, but the, the answer to my question, what can be done, um, is twofold. One is the longer-term sort of institutional adjustments. Uh, uh, the Senate is the primary focus of uh, institutional reform. It is the most dysfunctional legislative body in the democratic world. Uh, uh, there's no one that comes, uh, comes close to it. But voters themselves have to be a little more strategic. They have to ask the question, well, how does our government work? And what does it mean to simply throw out sort of one, sort of one team like this, given, given two separate institutions, separately elected, does divided government really work under these circumstances when the parties differ, uh, differ so much? They themselves need to think strategically to garner a little more information to figure out what those parties believe, how they would govern, whether the way in which they would govern is at all credible. What do you have to say, Doc, Representative Pingree, about what, what citizens can do to change what really matters here? Well, again, I, I think Dr. Mann's making a lot of very good points and, um, you know, in a way, forcing me to think about it a little differently than I'm used to. I rarely think about what the United States would be like if we were a parliamentary system. And I am always loath to blame the voter to say, well, if the voters were more educated, if people paid more attention to elections, um, you know, we'd have better results. But there is something, I think, in the argument that he's making you know, today, um, you know, we don't have much civics education in our in our schools. We don't have a lot of um, in-depth reporting in the media. 
and we do have a lot of just sort of you know anger and antagonism directed towards whoever's in power today and um you know it's unleashed in talk radio and you know sort of soundbite tv and you know newspapers have sort of diminished their coverage and don't have real newsrooms so when people try to figure out okay what's the root of the problem here in many ways our most instantaneous solution is throw the bums out it must be these guys they're bad and what you get as uh, Dr. Mann said, is, you know, you have a president who gets elected, there was a Democratic Congress, and there was a big agenda, health care, you know, changing our energy system, financial reform, and barely two years to implement it all, and then, you know, this sort of downturn in the economy that led everybody to believe that there's something that government is doing wrong, and let's change them, so you throw everybody out. Um, and then we've got, you know, potential repeal of a health care reform that's just barely, you know, coming into its own uh, defunding of the financial reform of Wall Street, which was a big cause of our, um, you know, financial problems in this country, not, not not sufficient oversight of Wall Street, and we're about to defund a lot of that. So it is uh, kind of a dramatic swing where in many ways uh, the people who have the ultimate power to make the decisions, the voters of this country, in a sense don't have enough information. I am a true believer in democracy. I really think that people, whatever their educational background and experience and age, People make very good decisions if you put all the information on the table in front of them. And they're very sophisticated about understanding who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. But today it's very hard to access that information. And we're told immediately, you know, there's something wrong with this president, throw out Obamacare, you know, and it's gone. You know, it's, it's, um, it, I think it is, a, it is a problem in a tough economy like this. We have very volatile swings. And in a sense, again, our system isn't designed um, to weather that. And I think... You know, for, from from the perspective of what the solutions could be, um, you know, they're they're pretty big and pretty systemic. And I'll I'll just try to throw a few out there because I I know you don't want us to spend the whole time just complaining about the problem. <laughs> but it is hard to solve, and I think it's a new era for our country. I you know I believe that history swings one way and the other way, but in many ways um, there there is a breakdown in our system. And fundamental to me, I think, is the lack of in-depth coverage of a news media. I mean, you can have partisan news media, you can have opinionated news media, but for people not to have sufficient access to in-depth information, I think has really um, you know, changed the way we look at decision-making in this country. And that's, um, you know, that's a big problem. Newspapers are shrinking. Uh, you know, television and radio is becoming sort of more partisan and opinionated, and um, I think it's harder for people to access good information. I'd say the other thing that's a sort of end result of this uh, two-year wild swings is that everything is about campaigning for the next election. And campaigns are fundamentally um, undermined in this country by the increasing influence of money in politics. You know, um, the best member who comes to Congress with the best intentions is immediately reminded that if they don't have millions of dollars or, you know, depending on their district, a million dollars in the bank, in no time they'll have a huge challenger, maybe from their own party, um, and they won't be able to return. So their whole uh, um, existence as a representative of the people of their district gets overwhelmed by the fact that they have to raise enough money that put enough ads on TV to counter whatever any outside special interest or their opponent puts up there, and their focus gets shifted. And I, and I say it, you know, with all benevolence, the best members of Congress end up spending way too much of their time figuring out how do I raise enough money? That might mean hours and hours every day on the phone making phone calls uh, to raise money when you ought to be thinking about reading policy or having a cup of coffee with your um, colleague from the other side of the aisle to enhance your relationship with them. A whole variety of things get thrown out the door because 
um, uh, uh, elected official today, House, Senate, whatever, um, has to spend a tremendous amount of time raising money. I haven't seen recent figures, but I, I know the last time I looked at something, it said the average member of the United States Senate has to raise $13,000 a day to ensure that they will get reelected. This is a six-year election cycle, so just think what that means and how much money that is. Um, and then you've got the influence, you know, at times of who gave you the money and what was their interest before you, and did they get increased access to talking to an elected official because they made a contribution, they come to your fundraiser, they talk to you on the phone, and has that skewed sort of what the will of the people and the interest of people who don't have money to spend, um, do they have far less influence on our members of Congress today? Just because, if nothing else, they don't get the, they don't get the time um, to, to, and the ac- access to that elected official to make their case. This is... I think Shelley has offered just a whole host of really interesting uh, points and um, ideas to follow up. Let me, let me just underscore and, uh, and supplement very, very briefly. I agree with her. Don't blame, simply blame the voters and tell them to get more educated and go invest in civic education, but rather ch- challenge them and assist them in ways that uh, allow them to understand the choices they face and the likely consequences of their action. Ironically, we, we direct a lot of our unhappiness at the new partisan press that has developed, but, but the traditional mainstream press is part of the problem, too, because their professional norms of fairness and balance oftentimes lead them to sort of blur the differences uh, being offered between the parties and, and, in effect, disarm the electorate by convincing them, ah, everything's bad, everyone's bad, it's hopeless, there's nothing that can be done but throw this team out. Uh, the fact is that that sort of false equivalence, artificial balance in a system where there is no balance is, is, uh, is is rendering a disservice. So that's my first suggestion. Uh, sort of press the establishment press to to get the story right, not to say we've we've uh, explained both sides. That is, if all we have is a crossfire in the traditional press, all we'll do is uh, uh, is have more public disaffection. Secondly, it's up to politicians and. President Obama is finally raising uh, himself to the game to uh, to point out the differences and uh, and to make explicit arguments about what's good to do and what's bad to do and let Republicans make uh, make their case and let that be covered uh, aggressively. That's another another important task of political elites of leaders uh, instead of uh, attacking Congress uh, in general, or Washington, or or the political system, or government. Let's let's be more pointed and specific, and and thereby allow voters to do the job they can do. The final thing on money, you know, what worries me most now is are two things. Uh, one, so much of our fundraising is now tied to to the political parties. Uh, we have such a redistribution of resources from safe members to, to, uh, 
to vulnerable ones that it kind of reinforces the almost tribalism between the parties. Now, if you want to get anywhere in a party, you've got to raise big bucks uh, to be a committee chairman or ranking member, move up into the party leadership. That in intensifies the problem. But the second is the emergence uh, following Citizens United of the so-called super PACs. We are moving toward a system where senators may have to raise uh, as much money a day or a week as Shelley said, but they now face the possibility in the last week of their campaign of a super PAC moving in and spending five, ten million dollars in ads against them and being in no position to defend themselves. We have re-entered a state of nature. All the limits are effectively off uh, money and politics, and, uh, and that is very worrisome. At this point, I think I would like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Maine's First District Congresswoman, the Honorable Shelley Pingree, and Dr. Thomas Mann, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Our topic is, what do we need to make our de democracy work better? Listeners, what do you think? If you have a question for one of our guests, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We've been talking about a, a number of factors. We have a call, so um, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, as somebody who's kind of through the years uh, followed elections and followed elections, I find that um, the elections are getting less interesting to me every year because they sort of offer the same thing. And even uh, across parties, uh, you, you know, you'll hear different concepts, but you really hear, in the end, the same thing happening. And uh, it makes me think that um, while you can look at the system um, in terms of how it's operating, eventually you have to step back and look systemically at it. And uh, what I find myself doing is saying, as long as we're a warlike nation, how can we possibly, as long as our need is to create war and to, you know, uh, create and send it out across the globe, how can we possibly have a government that um, responds to people? And uh, that's it. That you know, it's a simple comment. It just, um, I think it you know, takes you back far enough off the planet to look down and say, you know, whether you have the systems, uh, whether you tune the systems or not, are you ever actually going to get to that basic issue? Thank you. Very, thanks for that comment. Um, would, Representative Pingree, would you like to um, respond to that listener's comment? Or, Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, he mentioned that frequently I think voters um, 
see sort of a muddle when they look at two candidates, and I think that's often true. Um, you know, you spend much time in politics, and you kind of get trained in political speak, and, and people listen to you say something, and they think, wow, she sounds just like the other guy. What's the difference here? And I do think that's a common frustration of voters today. Um, a, sometimes there's not enough in-depth coverage about the real difference in issues between two candidates, but B, sometimes, you know, uh, Democrats try too hard to move to the right to look like Republicans, and Republicans, you know, sort of muddle the case looking like Democrats, and I think, I think he's right. Sometimes people get frustrated, like, whoa, there's no real difference in the candidate, or nobody's saying anything new. The second part, um, you know, sort of in the bigger philosophical issue, um, again, I think he makes some good points. I mean, I um, have been very concerned about our country and, and the two wars that we've been fighting over the last decade. When I first ran in 2002 for the U.S. Senate, I was opposed to getting into the war at that point, and have continued to do so um, even as a member of Congress um, advocated our getting out of Afghanistan and, and really thought that these things, A, um, have had a big impact on our financial problems in this country, the incredible buildup in defense spending and the cost of two wars, um, not to mention the loss of human lives and the challenges it's had for states like ours, for instance, where um, we have one of the highest per capita involvements of young people going to serve in the military. Um, I think we don't often stand back enough as a country um, and say, you know, where are the right places to be to protect national security and make sure that we have a safe future? And where are places where we're really, in fact, um, you know, completely misguided using bad information and going to war for all the wrong reasons? And I think many people would argue that the last two significant conflicts that, for this country that have been phenomenally expensive and caused a huge loss of life have been just fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you have to sort of stand back and say, well, why aren't we talking about, you know, what kind of people are we and what way do we want to govern and how do we want to be viewed around the world? You know, real fundamental questions and issues. And I would just say, again, this is one place where, um, you know, there, there, there are agreements between Republicans and Democrats. One of my favorite colleagues is Walter Jones of North Carolina, represents a military base himself, but, you know, that man is up on the floor, you know, virtually every day talking about the importance of ending the war and the loss of soldiers and the cost of this country. I mean, that's not necessarily a partisan issue. I think it's one of those places where we should be standing back um, as elected officials and saying, you know, let, let's have a deeper conversation about who we are and how we want to work. And um, there is a, a fair amount of cross-party um, interest on that. But again, you know, as Tom said, the parties have gotten, to a certain extent, a little bit um, of political operations, and people are encouraged to act in lockstep, and Republicans want to be the party of, you know, strong defense and criticizing the governor, I mean, the president for getting out of Iraq. And, um, you know, Democrats get perceived as weak on defense and not keeping the country secure, and we get, you know, perceived as locked into our positions. And I think sometimes, as the caller said, we don't, we don't talk enough about, you know, the real big issues about who are we as a nation. It looks like we have another caller. Give us your name and town, and um, you're on the air. Good morning. It's the Analog Anarchist from Dover Foxcroft. Uh, listening to the uh, European uh, media, I heard that the Congress's approval rating was more like 8%. And uh, what, one commentator noted that the American Communist Party enjoys a 12% uh, approval rating. <laughs> uh, our, our government, uh, uh, our government, people in our government, swore an oath to uphold this Constitution. As far as the people are concerned, the most important part of our Constitution is the first ten amendments, collectively known as the Bill of Rights. The last two administrations of both parties have 
just about abrogated the entire Bill of Rights. From, from I, I didn't even know where to begin with this. Uh, um, we, we have uh, uh, phone companies are, are granted by the courts retroactive immunity, whatever that is. That's, that's the craziest concept I ever heard of. Caller, uh, I'm going to just that, ask you to be brief and put your question to our, our listeners. Um, I w- was afraid for a minute you were going to run through the whole Bill of Rights, but if you have a question, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I, I could run through the whole Bill of Rights, but we're at, we've entered martial law. Our president uh, declares that he can uh, assassinate people at will. No, no, don't run through the whole list. Just put your question to our guests, please. Well, is it any wonder that, that uh, the people do not approve of the Congress? We don't approve of the government at all. We're in the streets. And you guys better wise up. Thank you. Very good que- comment. Dr. Mann, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, listen, I don't think the source of uh, public happiness with Congress has much to do with uh, issues raised by the caller. Um, I do think there are legitimate concerns of, about privacy, about uh, presidential powers regarding the use of of military force, the, the treatment of, uh, of uh, military combatants, uh, the way in which the war on terror is, uh, is executed. There are just a whole set of thorny, difficult issues uh, there which, which, uh, which people in government and critics outside government are wrestling with every day. But that isn't the that isn't really why the public is uh, is down right now. They're down because uh, uh, life is tough. Uh, we've come through a horrible uh, economic crisis. Um, we've had winners and losers. We've we've had stagnant wages, high high unemployment, we growing economic inequality, both in terms of income and, uh, and wealth, and people are fearful of less about the police state and, frankly, more about uh, the future of their children and, and grandchildren, of whether the, the American dream to, to work hard uh, and be rewarded with a better life uh, still obtain in, in this country. It's a big challenge. They're tough. Uh, they're tough issues. I don't mean dismiss the Bill of Rights. It's it's essential, but I don't think it's the most uh, important part of the Constitution. I think the structure of the Constitution itself is uh, what defines us as a uh, as a nation. And right now, we got to worry about it because of the problems uh, we've been talking about here today. The kind of political parties we have don't match up well with that structure. I, I think we have another caller. Um, go ahead with your name and your town, your question, your comment. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's John, and I'm in Unity, Maine. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, I'd like to go back to this idea of money in politics and ask how it got there and suggest that Corporate personhood is a big problem. Um, the fact that we have corporations who are who have all of the breaks to amass money, tax breaks, etc., um, are now allowed to give as much money as uh, as they'd like. Um, 
the other economic issue is the fact that all of this money is going out of the country in terms of military expenditure for what I see as as insecurity, whereas real security is built within the country and having a strong population and a well-fed and well-employed population. Um, I agree with the previous caller that uh, Congress better watch out, the government better watch out, because this is where things start to collapse from within. Um, I heard Shelley say that uh, a number of people on both sides of the aisle um, would like to see these wars end. Um, and my question is, what are you going to do about it? Thank you so much for your call. I just remind our listeners, this is the Democracy Forum. Toll free, 866-625-9378 or locally, 469-0500. Uh, Representative Pingree, what about that, that comment? Uh, we're coming up on the first anniversary of Citizens United. Some people think we need a constitutional amendment to remedy the free speech for corporations. Um, absolutely, and uh, thank you to the caller. I thought he raised a lot of good points. Um, there are seven different bills in the House um, looking at constitutional amendments or ways to overturn um, Citizens United, and I think I've signed on to all of them or most all of them and certainly support every possible way um, to reduce this influence of, of uh, you know, big money in politics, um, and I agree with him on the there is one of them that addresses corporate personhood. I, I supported that um, change to the law back when I was a state legislator and completely agree. We shouldn't give corporations the rights of individuals. Uh, you know, there's a famous video, and not picking on Mitt Romney, but just sort of shocking to watch someone question him and him say, well, of course corporations are people. And you're thinking, really? You know, I mean, what, what possible planet can you bring that information from to say that a corporation should have the same rights as individuals in this country, I don't agree with the United States Supreme Court um, and some of the recent decisions that they've made, and I don't think that we can always equate, you know, spending money with free speech. I really don't think this is the way the founding fathers intended it, and I and I think um, it is rapidly spiraling out of control. Just as Dr. Mann said, people can raise all the money they want in their campaign, and in the last two weeks, millions of dollars can be poured in. Sometimes. Um, you have no idea who the money even came from, but they're allowed to just throw out an opinion or misinformation and, and undermine what's going on. And, and the caller, I think, is accurate in assessing that many times it's big special interests. It's the oil companies. It's um, pharmaceutical manufacturers, people in the healthcare industry who didn't want the changes, the financial markets that didn't want to have more reform. You know, many of these special, uh, you know, particular interests pour a lot of money in against candidates that they believe won't support their point of view, and they are increasingly doing it very effectively um, so, again, I completely agree. I'm just as concerned as the caller who addressed the ideas of, you know, sending much of our money offshore, losing our manufacturing jobs to China. I've consistently voted against trade agreements because I don't think that they're beneficial to manufacturing states like Maine. And I vote against all the corporate loopholes that allow it easy to take your money um, out of this country. So I think these are important points for us to address. And I would just say, you know, on the other point, I'm, I'm thrilled with the Occupy movement and the fact that more and more Americans are standing up and recognizing this thing. When I first voted on a bill to restrict corporate personhood in the legislature in the 90s, um, it's not something you could start up a conversation about. And frankly, today, many more people know um, why this is a concern. Many more people understand 
um, the huge impact that Citizens United is having on our political system and, frankly, support, um, you know, doing something about it. So I would say, you know, for me, um, I'm, I'm supporting all the pieces of legislation that are currently before us in Congress, lobbying many of my colleagues on public financing, which is a big interest of mine because it's, I think, been very effective um, for the most part in the state of Maine. And I guess the one other question he asked me directly was, what are you going to do about ending the war? And, you know, I am only one of 435 people, but I ran for office opposing the war. You know, to me, um, you know, I did the biggest thing I thought I could do. I ran for Congress in opposition to the war. I even ran for the United States Senate in 02 in opposition to the war at a time it wasn't popular. So I'm doing my very best to make my voice known. I vote against, you know, uh, anything that would fund the war, and I vote in favor of anything that would end the war. Um, that's about as much as you can do as elected member of Congress, and I certainly uh, try to form uh, coalitions with my other colleagues and work in ways that we can be effective to lobby, whether it's the administration or the other side of the aisle, to understand that um, these wars have to end, and we have to think more cautiously about entering into major ground rules, wars like the ones we've been involved in, particularly when we do so with insufficient information. Like we have another caller. Um, give us your name. Tell us where you're from. You're on the air, and go ahead with your question or comment. My name is Frank Donnelly, and I'm from Lemoyne. And I agree with everything Shelley just said. But my main reason was calling was to say I had a Tom man who he and I and five other fellows lived together in 1965 and worked at the World's Fair in New York City. We went to high school together, and I've seen Tom several year, times over the years on TV, on CBS, and I just wanted to say hi to Thomas Mann, and uh, proud to know him. He's uh, uh, quite in mind, I would say, and uh, I, I hope he remembers me from years back, and that's about it. Thank you for your call. It's really interesting hearing him on the radio, and I love WRU, and I'm glad I live in Maine. We have this radio station. We need more radio stations like this and more in-depth news so people, you know, have an idea rather than just the spin of the uh, charisma guys on TV. Thanks. Thank you so much for your call, Dr. Mann. Do you want to say hi back? Oh, thanks. <laughs> Wonderful to hear from you. Of course I uh, remember you. Uh, and I don't think I've seen or heard from you in 30 or 40 years. Uh, uh, it, uh, ah, the blessings of public radio. Uh, <laughs> hey, Frank, there's a 50th high school reunion coming up uh, this year. We're getting old. Uh, <laughs> hope to see you there. That's so funny. It looks. Thank you so much for your call. It looks like we have another caller on the line. Give us your name. Tell us where you're from. You're on the air. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hello, my name is Sonny. I'm from Penobscot, and I've been listening all through your program, and I just don't understand why nobody's questioned the Republican roadblock, whereas everything that President Obama has put forth was completely shut down because the Republicans want him out of office. They want him to look bad. And I just was wondering if there's anything that can be done about it. Just just one party. Thank you so much for your comment, Sonny. I think Dr. Mann kind of hit on this in the first comments that he made. Dr. Mann, do you want to reiterate some of those thoughts? Oh, yeah. I. This is, this is a central point that I've been... Um, making uh, 
that, in fact, the parties aren't equal today. The Republicans not only have ideas about uh, really overturning a policy regime in place for decades, in some cases for for a century, but they're using tactics uh, to oppose, obstruct, discredit, even nullify uh, laws that have been duly enacted, uh, signed by the president and waiting to be implemented. So it is, it is, it is a vehemently oppositional party, which, if in a parliamentary system, would not be in a position to, to do any harm, but simply talk. Uh, in our system, they can do a lot of damage, and and they've been doing so. And and frankly, the only way uh, uh, to change that is uh, is with the voters for them to recognize what uh, Republicans have been doing and and uh, toss them out of power. That's the only way the party itself will change. Uh, uh, moving back into the mainstream of American politics, albeit right center, uh, not like Democrats, but still in the mainstream, and and uh, before that, it at least gives uh, gives President Obama and the Democrats an opportunity to try to to try to grapple with the problems that we face, and maybe over time persuade a few of their uh, their Republican colleagues as. Shelley described with Walter Jones uh, uh, to begin to uh, uh, play ball and get something done. It looks like we have another caller on the line. Um, give us your name. Tell us where you're from. Go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Yes, my, uh, my name is Peter, and I'm from uh, Newburgh. And um, <clears throat> I have a question for uh, Representative Pinigree. I was wondering if she, uh, if she could tell us if she... Um, voted for or against the National uh, Defense Authorization Act, and also if she could comment on, the, on um, why she thinks we need $662 billion to defend our country. And that's it. Thanks for your question, Peter. Representative Pingree, that was for you. Uh, as far as I know, I, I voted no. I vote no on Defense Appropriations Acts for the very um, reason that the caller stated um, they continue to fund the war, and um, while I think we need a strong national defense in this country, I'm not arguing against having a defense. I think that funding the war and, frankly, some of the recent issues around um, prisoner detainment have been upsetting to me, as one of the earlier callers uh, talked about. So I generally vote in opposition to defense appropriations bills when they come before Congress. Um, and I guess just... Uh, just to follow up also on the last question, um, I, I want to just point out to people listening, it's an interesting phenomenon today. I, I'm a Democrat. I'm a hardcore partisan Democrat. I'm a liberal Democrat. And, you know, I'm here on the call really in many ways to talk about the, the systemic problems, but also see the issues with Republicans today. But I think it's fascinating. Dr. Mann, who I've known for many years, who's a highly regarded scholar in Washington, very very much a nonpartisan player, more than once has harkened back to the fact that sometimes one party, you know, gets totally skewed um, in the way they go about governing. And I think we can't, um, you know, we can't sort of leave that off the table. You know, we have some systemic problems, but we also have sort of an unwritten, in a sense, code in our country that, you know, we can have a two-party system if both parties are willing to participate 
in the role of governing. And I, I can just say, you know, I served eight years in the state legislature, um, worked as a Senate majority leader, had the opportunity to um, work with Republicans and Democrats on a whole variety of issues, pass unanimous reports out of committee, uh, pass the prescription drug bill in the Senate, very, very complicated, that had unanimous support in the Senate, virtually unanimous in the House. So I've worked on a lot of issues where parties come together, where people get to know each other, where they find that common ground. This is a very um, interesting and, and frustrating time in Congress. And as a member of the House of Representatives, I can say we go in, you know, to to vote every week, and week after week it's a bill to undermine the EPA or the National Labor Relations Board or seven different days we've spent devoting uh, to a women's right to choose. These aren't bills that are going to go anywhere. They never get moved forward in the Senate. They don't um, advance the concerns that people have about uh, you know, restructuring our economy, getting money out of politics. Um, you know, put, taking more control over the financial institutions in this country that have caused us so much damage. They don't deal with all those things. They're just sort of partisan plays uh, week after week to, to sort of spotlight um, the sound bites that people want to put on TV. And it's very destructive to governing. The, the previous caller mentioned the fact, um, you know, and I didn't say this earlier, but that, that you sometimes sense that this is a party that's just doing everything they can to make the president look bad. Um, there was a time... I think in this country where people said, okay, I may not have voted for this president, but he or she, I guess it's always been a he, has been our, is our president, and for four years we're going to find a way to work together. It doesn't feel like that in Washington today. It feels like everybody in the Republican Party in Congress is just working towards the messaging on the presidential election of next year and undermining the power of the president. And the last thing I'll say about that is the most discouraging thing is to watch um, a party in power that will do anything it can, it seems, to undermine the economy. I mean, we have people struggling, unemployed, really in difficult circumstances, small businesses shutting down over the last couple of years. You know, a terrible time for our economy, yet we have people who are perfectly happy to do nothing, or even worse, to do damage to the economy because it will give them an advantage in an election. And to me, that's you know, that's unconscionable. That you know, We're not elected to serve to advance our own purposes and our own power, uh, we're elected to represent the entire country, the people who agree and disagree with us and the people who are struggling. And that is probably the most sinister and frustrating thing we have to deal with today. And, you know, it may not be just a problem with the system, but it is certainly <laughs> systemic. And I think um, if we can't figure out a way to, uh, you know, uproot the ability for that to happen in politics, we're going to continue in a very bad path and, and not be the great nation we, we have been. We've got one more caller, um, so I'm going to give a chance for this person to ask their question. Give us your name. Tell us where you're from. Um, go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. The question of corporate personhood is largely rhetorical. And the, the issue about um, partisan politics and our so-called two-party system is strictly a fake and a diversion. The duality in America and the world today is the return to a feudal structure where um, there's a two-tiered cased system that is emerging and has been for some time in which uh, administrators and corporate officers and police and the wealthy and the 1% are exempt. They're, they're immune. They're separate. They don't have to wait in the same lines. They don't have to pay the same rates. They don't have to obey the same laws. 
and that pertains to the uh, so-called erosion of our freedoms. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are a contract between the government and the people in which the government promises to protect rights that are inalienable. And now we see a situation where government, corporations, they don't have to obey any laws, even if they are on the books, and if they are, they'll change them. We're really running out of time, but our caller raises a very important um, question about wealth and income disparity and how that leads to power disparity in our political system. Dr. Mann, would you like to comment on that? Well, it's a, it's a strong, heartfelt uh, argument at the core of, of the Occupy movement, uh, precipitated by uh, uh, the economic developments in, in recent years, the, the growing inequality. Uh, uh, listen, we, our society uh, and great successes have been driven by the ability of, of, uh, of citizens, of ordinary folk to, uh, uh, to better their systems, to, uh, to get education, to get good jobs, to, to, uh, to live a, a satisfying and, and productive life. And we now feel those opportunities are, uh, are diminishing and that somehow a, a segment of the population is separated from all of those constraints. And I have to tell you, there, you know, when I hear the arrogance of people like uh, uh, private equity uh, mogul Stephen Schwartzman, who who uh, who attacked uh, Obama's recommendation to uh, to treat uh, the income of these uh, private equity managers as ordinary income instead of carried interest and taxed at the capital gains rate of 15 percent. Uh, Schwartzman said it's 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 like uh, Hitler's uh, uh, move in uh, in Germany, uh, you know, it's yet another Nazi move. I mean, that's the the extent to which some people um, who have so much money and and uh, believe they have so much power as to be cut off from the reality of the rest of the country. So I understand the frustration. We are we are just uh, about running out of time. Hope. Don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> we are just about running out of time here this morning. Um, I want to thank our guests. Uh, we've had the Honorable Shelley Pingree, uh, First District Congressman from, Congresswoman from Maine, and Dr. Thomas Mann, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution as our guest. It's been a fascinating program. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Joel Mann, our producer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our next program will be on February 13th, and we're going to be talking about Citizens United and the repercussions that have come out of that. Thank you so much. Call us at 622-0256 if you have ideas for a future program. Thank you very much.